Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, I spoke with Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. We spoke about recent changes in the magazine and also about his new book, Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England. Plus, I've chatted Japanese magazines and dogs with Manami Okazaki, author of Japan's Best Friend, Dog Culture in the Land of the Rising Sun. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. First in the show, I welcome Jason Cowley in the studio. He's the editor of The New Statesman, the iconic British News Weekly. The title has been revamped recently with a more in-depth international coverage. I must read for sure. Jason also wrote Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England, an examination of contemporary England through a handful of key stories. Let's hear from Jason. It really has been a period of um, extraordinary upheaval in the UK, but beyond the UK, in Europe and, and the US and elsewhere. But I'm, I'm focusing in the book on the UK, but particularly on England. Just think about what's happened here in recent times. We had a Scottish independence referendum in 2014. David Cameron and the coalition government went into the 2015 general election and Cameron's Conservatives won a surprise majority. He was there. He had pledged to hold an in-out referendum on the UK's membership of the EU. He won that majority. He held the referendum in 2016. He advised the British people to vote to remain in the EU, and they voted to leave. A huge shock for the for the for the elites, particularly what you might call the kind of liberal metropolitan elites in London and the big cities. And then we went into kind of three years of what were called the Brexit Wars, where the country became deeply polarised. And then just as we came out of the Brexit Wars, when Boris Johnson won the 2019 general election, on a rather crude pledge to get Brexit done, we went straight into the pandemic, from which we're just emerging. So it's been, an, it's been a period, really, of permanent crises. And the various crises have, have exposed the cracks within the framework of the, the United Kingdom. Scotland voted... Um, a majority of people in Scotland voted to remain, as did a majority in Northern Ireland. A majority in England and Wales voted to leave the EU. So you can see the divisions within the kingdom itself. And all the time sort of bubbling away has been this sense of English national reawakening or an enhanced English sense of self-consciousness. And the book began really, um, I was alarmed and unsettled by the polarisation in the country, particularly through the post-Brexit period or the, the vote for Brexit. And I wanted to explore what, what George Orwell called the social atmosphere of the country. I didn't want to be judgmental or polemical. And so I decided to sort of explore some of the big political themes by telling stories about events over the last sort of 20, 25 years. And I think that's what I like about your book. It's, it's, it's very much non-judgmental. You know, you talk about people with different views, but without being polarizing. I mean, you just look at even at the British media, uh, which is it's becoming more and more polarized. We talk about the US, but I feel that here it's also becoming, right, since Brexit as well. It's deeply polarized and it's only made worse by social media, mm. a kind of hostile, accusatorial environment on social media, on Twitter and elsewhere. But what I've tried to do is take a step back, travel, talk to people, report and revisit some of the defining moments of recent times in British history. I begin really with Tony Blair's election 
1997. And Blair, you know, Blair, in a speech in 1995, he said, I want this to be a young country. You know, we will be a young country. I mean, England and Denmark are, are probably the two oldest nation states in Europe. I mean, there, there was a recognisable English identity before the Norman Conquest in 1066. How can it really be a young country? What Blair meant, I think, is he wanted to embrace a kind of more open, plural, optimistic, progressive, modern British identity because he kind of wanted to ride the wave of the new globalisation. And, and you know, there was a lot of optimism around Blair and New Labour in the early years. But after 9-11, um, the world darkened. Blair took the UK in, in, to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I just wanted to explore some of the unravelling that followed that decision to go to war, you know, the American-led war in Iraq and Afghanistan, which really had devastating consequences, I think. And one an, another thing I like about the book, because I feel that, you know, it's not only negative, the sense of Englishness. I mean, you even mentioned some kind of positive cases, like just look at the World Cup with, you know, Gareth Southgate, where people felt proud to use the English flag, which I know in the past was controversial for, for different reasons. So there's also some kind of uh, glimmers of hope in there, oh, right? Sure, yeah. Um, Englishness, really, since the Act of Union of 1707, which was really the creation of the modern British state, Englishness has been lost within Britishness. The English were encouraged mm. to think of themselves, first and foremost, as British. And English identity was somewhere, was submerged within within the larger the larger framework of, of, of the British state. And of course, it was associated with empire and colonialism. But in recent times, as the UK has fragmented and a sense of British identity, which was particularly strong during the Second World War and its immediate aftermath, has weakened. And as a sense of kind of Scottish independence has strengthened, the, the movement for Scottish independence has strengthened, the English, it's been forced upon an English a reconsideration of who they are. And it's not entirely negative, quite the opposite. There's, there's many positives, I think, in, in trying to understand, you know, what England is and who the English who the English are. And you mentioned football. And in the when I was growing up in the sort of late 70s into the early 80s, there was a kind of negative association around the England football team. You know, the flag of St. George, people were suspicious of it. The England team used to carry the, the Union flag rather than the flag of St. George. There was a kind of unpleasant far-right faction attached to the England national team. All of that has begun to change in recent times, and particularly last summer during the Euros, which were co-hosted in England, we saw this kind of wonderfully reawakening of a new, progressive, positive English identity led by uh, Gareth Southgate, the England manager, and his young multiracial team. And I thought it was a really, a really positive period during the football during the summer. And, you know, I welcome that. And Southgate himself, the England manager, is an incredibly sophisticated thinker on these issues of identity, particularly national identity. And he wrote an essay just before, you know, how many football managers write essays? He wrote an essay just before the <laughs> tournament called Dear England, in which he spoke about his own patriotism, his pride when he played for England as a player. His grandfather had served in the Second World War. He was a monarchist. He believed in the military. But at the same time, he recognised the activism of his young players. He supported the Black Lives Matter movement. So he, he, he showed that you can both bring together tradition and diversity in a way that shouldn't really be problematic, but is for so many modern British politicians, particularly English politicians, who are scared to go near the English question. For some reason, it worries them, particularly the Labour Party, the left. It worries them. Patriotism, the flag, the national, for some reason, it unsettles them. It need not. 
I agree. I agree. And, and, and again, even staying with politics and, and on the positive side of things, I, I can see that as an outsider as well. That, I mean, look at Europe, the far right parties, they've been there for years now, sometimes even in coalitions. I felt that, of course, in the UK, you had some sort of presence, but quite minor compared to other European countries. That says something about the country as well, right? Yes, we had um, the emergence of, a, of UKIP, which was a kind of um, right-wing national populist anti-EU party led by Nigel Farage, you know, fantastic communicator, whatever you think of Farage's politics, you know, very, very smart communicator. And actually, I speak to him in the book, but we've never had a neo-fascist movement of any significance in this country or neo-fascist party, as we've seen in France with the National Front or some of the Scandinavian countries or indeed Eastern Europe. So somehow we've been able to negotiate this this terrain or territory without unleashing sort of far right fascist forces. And I think that's I think that's admirable. And it also suggests there's there's a more open debate in this country. But you know, if you close down its subjects such as immigration and um some of the some of the forces against EU membership or the causes of uh, of why so many people wanted to leave the EU. And they weren't necessarily anti-Europeans who chose to leave the EU. There were other forces in play. If you try and suppress these arguments, they erupt in unpleasant ways. And um, you're right, there isn't there isn't a significant neo-fascist party in the UK. And that's great, I think. Even you know, if you it look is. at the Scottish National Movement, it's a powerful nationalist movement. But under the leadership of Nicola Sturgeon, it's, it's benign. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a form of civic nationalism. It's not a sinister right-wing nationalism. No, I agree very much. And one thing I like, that your choice of stories, of course, you talk about Blair, talk about Brexit, but there were some uh, very moving stories, for example, and I have to be honest, I didn't know much about it, about, you know, the Chinese uh, cockle pickers in, in Morecambe Bay. Yes. I mean, it's interesting that you selected that story uh, in a book about Englishness as well. I thought it was quite quite moving. Yes, because I tell different stories, and I use uh, I use kind of literary techniques mm-hmm. um, with for the book. So there, there are some chapters which are more novelistic in, in tone, which is what I mean by it not being a work of polemic or indeed political analysis. But what I did, there was a there was a terrible incident in 2014 where a group of undocumented Chinese migrants who had been trafficked into the country drowned on, on Morecambe Bay. Um, they, were, they were picking these clams from the sands, you know, terribly backbreaking hard work, and the tides came in suddenly and very dramatically, and more than 20 of them were drowned, tragically. And I found the sole survivor who was pulled out of the water that night a guy from southern China, Li Hua. And I told his story from his point of view because I also wanted to look at the kind of what I call the dark shadow of globalisation. Li, when he set off from China, he was told he paid some money to a people smuggler and he, he was told he would be in England within two weeks and guaranteed a job. I think he paid at the time £10,000, which was quite a lot back then. He borrowed the money from a cousin who had borrowed the money from an uncle and he was sent off on this journey to to provide for the family. And um, he went to Beijing, went to Moscow. He was kept in a safe house in Moscow for months. Then he went to Ukraine. Then he went to Slovakia. Then he went to Germany, where he ended up in a detention centre. And so it went on. It took more than a year for him finally to arrive in England immediately detained, released after two days, ended up in a house in Liverpool where he told other Chinese workers that had gathered. His first day as a cockle picker on the sands was the day of the disaster. 
and it led to a, a, a police investigation and some prosecutions. And he turned witness against against the gangmaster, and was given an entirely new identity. And he still lives in the UK, but un, under a new identity. And I, I I I can't reveal his name. But he spoke to me about his story, and I attempted to tell it from his point of view. And it's a very it's a very moving and, and poignant story because I wanted to show that actually in this age of globalization there are also some very very dark stories of 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 people being moved around around the globe in very strange and sinister ways. And just coming back to that sense of being English and, and, and being British, yeah. I mean, sorry if it's personal, but would you feel more English or British? That, that's such an interesting question because even my partner, he's English, but he, we had this discussion. He, he said he feels more British, but it's an interesting... Where's your partner from in, in, in the UK? He's from like around... Kent, that's okay. his family. He, but feel, he feels more British. He feels he? more British. Perhaps not his parents, but maybe yeah. he feels more British. My my mother and father they were they were the, they were sort of children of the Second World War. They remember the, the Blitz and the bombs falling on London, and they they identified very much as British first and foremost. I've always identified as English, but also British. And one of the attractions of modern British identity is it's you have many identities mm-hmm. and compound identities. Um, and I like that. I like the fact that Britishness is not racial, it's inclusive, it's civic, it's plural. And don't forget, waves of migrants have come to these islands since the Second World War, from the old Commonwealth, from, from, the, from the Caribbean, from Eastern Europe. And, you know, we're all trying to gather together happily, um, not always happily, but we're trying, under the, what you might call this idea of the British umbrella. So although I, I, I self-identify as English, I'm also British, and I believe you can have a, have a double identity. Just as I talk to my, you know, some of my black friends who first and foremost see themselves as black British, because there's always been associations with Englishness, with whiteness and colonialism, and perhaps the racism they experienced um, as, young, as young boys and girls in the, in the 70s and 80s. So it's a complex identity, contested, always changing, and that's 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 the challenge. You know, can we hold the British nation together? Can we hold the state together with all the tensions that are in play? And that and you know, what is it that brings us together? What makes a community or a nation cohere? And that's one of the, the themes I explore in the book. Well, the book is fantastic. But Jason, as you're here, I have to ask you as well about the new statesman. Uh, I've always been a regular reader, but I love the changes. The magazine looks fresh, uh, more international. H- how are you feeling? T- tell us a bit, a bit some, of, <laughs> some of the changes. It's, it's, and by the way, the, one of the latest issues, not the most recent, uh, talks about Britain as well. Indeed, it's uh, a special issue about uh, what we call a dream of Britain, because you know, does Britain have a dream in the way that America so people has should a dream? Buy the magazine and Buy the, the magazine and find the answer. <laughs> no, but the New Statesman, you know, it's a very old, established, political, and cultural magazine, originally just a print magazine. It was founded in 1913. And over the last 10 years, it's been on a, we've been working on a, on a period of um, kind of modernizing and, and, and reforming and refining the New Statesman. We've launched um, you know, a very successful big website. Like you, we have our own podcasts. Um, we, we have newsletters. And there's, a, there's a lot going on. And during lockdown, when we were all working from home remotely, we decided it's time to refresh it. So we working with Mark Porter, uh, one of the le- Europe's leading editorial designers. We rethought and redesigned the magazine and we launched an entirely new website, cleaner, more elegant, we think, more international in, in, in focus, 
because we're we're looking to go beyond the UK. We we want to take take you know our, journal, our journalism is very international. And just look at the way we've been covering the war in Ukraine. We you know we have some great great international writers, and we want to be read beyond beyond the UK. We want to be read in Europe and the US and, and elsewhere. There's an appetite for that. It's interesting that people talk about the, the print world, but actually, especially when it comes to Newsweekly magazines. You know, there is an appetite for that. In fact, some circulations are rising, right? And I think it's your case. Yes, our circulation is going up. Our, our, our web traffic and our registrations on the website are, are rising very rapidly. And we have a, we have a, we're not partisans. You know, we have an open mind. We have a liberal, sceptical sensibility. You know, that, our liberalism informs our journalism. And we're curious. And we see our mission as sort of trying to understand and explain um, and analyze the, the big forces that are driving... Um, change in the world. I mean, it is an extraordinary period of upheaval everywhere as we try to understand this kind of new age of, of great power rivalry. And, you know, that that's in the past, the New Statesman has been associated with sort of the Labour Party. And we've gone beyond that. Trying to elect, help the Labour Party get elected isn't the focus of our interest and hasn't been for a long time. And we're seeing the benefits of, of changing the magazine and broadening its appeal. And it looks very beautiful well, as well, I mean, some of the, the design changes as that's well. That's high praise for Monocle, which is a, <laughs> a, a publication that understands design and, and good-looking good looking things. Well, Jason, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. That was Jason Cowley there, editor of The New Statesman. His book, Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England, is out now, published by Picador. Also on the show, I had the pleasure to discuss Japanese magazines and why they're so good, and also dogs, with journalist and writer Manami Okazaki. Her new book, called Japan's Best Friend, Dog Culture in the Land of the Rising Sun, is a delight, exploring the fascinating bond with dogs in Japan, from a chapter on architecture for dogs to a full look at Japanese dog breeds. Here is Manami with more. I've been writing about, like, animal culture in Japan for like well over 10 years. But I think in terms of like why dogs, it's a bit of a no brainer. Like, like I'm making an object, like I'm making a book. It's a thing that exists in the physical world. So it's really important that I choose like a, like a visually striking kind of topic because I'm making like no visual culture books and the design is really important for my kinds of books. So it also has to be quite diverse. So I like other animals. I think Japanese crows are really beautiful, but I'm not going to do a book on you know Japanese crows because there's just it, there's not enough diversity. Like I'm looking to interview about like a hundred people for the books, and um, one of the interesting things about Japanese dogs is that there is like um, it's not just the actual real animal; it's also what they represent and signify as well. So the symbolic values of the dogs are quite interesting. So before doing the dog book, I also did um, a book on cats. It's quite similar conceptually, but symbolically cats are quite complex, like they're shady and they're nefarious and they can be quite sexy. And um, they appear a lot in Japanese horror. They're taken to be quite complicated, but um, dogs are more like friendly and affable and adorable and fluffy and like huggable and a plethora of really positive kind of attributes. And another thing that makes them quite interesting is that um, they're owned by humans. Like there's a kind of master and owned relationship. So that makes for interesting analogies with like with power dynamics, like with humans. So like when you look at Japanese comics, quite often they'll use this kind of like power dynamic, like the, the master and the owned kind of like analogy within manga. So um, 
yeah, there's like a lot of things to cover with Japanese dogs. Um, I think another thing like with Japan, um, like I think in Japan to consider something for it to be considered traditional, it has to have existed at least like usually like since the Edo era, which is like 1603 to 1808. So if it's later than that, like, you know, you kind of question whether that's traditional or not. But in terms of like um, Japanese dogs, like the relationship between humans and animals has been like since the Jomon period, which is like 10,500 10, BC to 300 BC. So that's insane. That's like, you know, 10,000 years of history, more than 10,000 years of history. And um, like the people of the time really had to rely on their dogs, like in order to get food. So um, there is a kind of like very interesting relationship that um, people had with that, like animals. And it's interesting if you kind of compare it with like Western kind of anthropology and philosophy, like where there's a kind of dichotomy between like, it's like humans versus nature, humans versus animals, like, whereas in Japan, it's still quite animistic. So if you look at like popular culture, like Studio Ghibli films, they do use a lot of animism. So the the line between human and animal is a little bit more blurry in Japan. So, so yeah, I think that like animals in general are quite interesting in Japan as a topic. That's very interesting to hear kind of those insights and the differences as well. And again, you were talking about cats, how they're associated with horror or they can be a bit sexy, but, and dogs are kind of a bit different, a bit, and, and I think your book represents that very well because your book, I have to say, you know, I love magazines as well. It feels a little bit like a very nice and colorful magazine. I love the designs. What, what, what was that deliberate as well? It's, it's, it's really kind of eye-catching in a way. The designers, I think for the types of books that I make with Presto, like the designers are so, so important, like to have that kind of like really great communication with the designers. Like um, I was really lucky to have two. So I had like Nina um, who are Klein and um, also John Phillips Sage and they collaborated on the design. And when you have people like that, you can just rely on them like to really create like a real item that's so so beautiful to look at and like so beyond my own expectations so um this kind of like super vivid colors and you know like the really shocking yellows and yeah like that was pretty much i could just rely on like those guys for for the visual aspect of the book and i love the little at the beginning of the book you have a description of all the breeds as well you told me you grew up with akitas right yeah, uh, and, 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 you know, I, I know more uh, Shibas and it's quite interesting. I didn't know that, that they have some sort of similarity with cats in their behavior, because I yeah. always thought they were quite reserved dogs in a way, not all of them. And, mm -hmm. and then I had, I had no idea. Now I, I discovered that in your book. And, and for example, there's also the Shikoku. I never heard of it. It looks beautiful, actually. Yeah, there's a lot of like really rare breeds in Japan, um, like extremely rare, like some, some are only like a couple of hundred. But yeah, like, again, going back to, you know, the Akitas and also the Shibas, like, I think what really makes them interesting is not just the animal itself, but like, you know, the Shibas are like an internet icon. There's like the Doge and like Dogecoin. And I think most of the cryptocurrency memes, they're mostly Shibas now. With the Akita, like, they they kind of represent loyalty and they're really like kind of intertwined with like politics as well, surprisingly. They have a long history of being like diplomacy dogs as well, which is kind of crazy because they're just dogs. You know, over time, like what they symbolize really changes. And I think like, because Akitas are known for being so loyal with Hachiko, there's a really famous Akita dog that waited for its master for nine years outside Shibuya Station. And um, the owner 
works at Tokyo University and passed away. But the dog doesn't know that. So he just waited at the station for nine years. There's like a um, statue for Hachiko outside Shibuya Station, like just outside the crossing there. And I think it's probably the most famous animal um, in Japan. So um, people really like worship that kind of story. And yeah, I think like both those breeds are really fascinating. But in particular, the Shiba, I would say, is like so incredibly fashionable and also so ingrained in internet culture as well. Even though, of course, clearly the Japanese love their dogs and everything, but is it a dog-friendly country, would you, would you say? that Do you think it's easy having a dog? Because at the moment, people are having more cats, right, than, than dogs, right? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting if you, um, like, owning dogs, like, when you go to Austria and, like, people just have, like, dogs on the train. And that isn't possible in Japan. And But I think, like, slowly, slowly, um, because there's actually more pets in Japan than children, Normally, I've got to rescue dogs at the moment, um, and normally I take them to my jobs now. So I've been working a lot in rural Japan, and um, I normally take them to my shoots. And so I've been staying at a lot of like facilities for dogs, like dog-specific hotels, like dog-specific hot spring. And the facilities are amazing. Like um, there was one hotel I stayed in, and they had like they have like a kind of a buffet for humans, but then they have a buffet for dogs as well. <laughs> like, it's really amazing. So they are trying to make, like, they've figured, like, even if you have a hotel, like, that caters to children, there's more people with pets at the moment. So it's more lucrative to cater to, like, pet owners. And by the way, one of my favorite sessions of the book was the architecture for dogs. I mean, it's incredible pieces of architecture. I, I have no idea. So uh, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I think basically, again, because of the like the fact that Japanese people are having less children and there's there's more pets, it just makes more sense to be making products for like pet owners. And Manami, I was, I was going to ask, of course, you wrote books about cats, about, about dogs as well. And tell us about, you, you do work with a kind of a magazine, newspapers. Have you ever thought about having your own magazine about Japanese pets? I, I would buy that one. <laughs> oh, I would love to. Like, I think... Um, I think when people talk about print in Japan and, you know, they'll be like, oh, like, why do you do books? Why do you still work in the printed medium? Um, it's not actually a cultural anomaly here to want to do that. So I think um, like most creators and artists that I know and photographers, they all aspire to have a book or like some form of printed matter. And of course, there's like the digital apocalypse here, like you see people on their cell phones all the time. But I think um, there's a pretty strong print culture in Japan, like um, like magazines are pretty robust. Like a lot of the, the legacy magazines, like Brutus, like a culture magazine, like a lot of the old school fashion magazines are still around. And um, even like genres of magazines that are just annihilated overseas, like lad mags, like that still exists in Japan. So it's still kind of like quite robust and um, I do really love the idea of like, like doing a magazine. Like I think um, I was doing a job, like it was a journalism job um, for the Japan Times and it was on the book district in Tokyo and it's the biggest book district in the world. It's called Jinbocho and they have like 10 million books in their collective inventory. And I was interviewing um, a shop called Magnif and they specialize in vintage magazines. And um, he was saying something that really resonates with me. And um, it's like when you get a magazine, like, um, for example, if you're researching on the net, like you'll you'll only find what you're looking for. Whereas with the magazine, in particular with the graphic design um, of like Japanese magazines, 
they tend to lay it out. So there's so much information on like each page and um, it might look chaotic for a lot of people's eyes, but um, what the editors are doing, like they're kind of like curating. So they're linking together cultures. So you might be looking for like sneakers. So you'll buy a sneaker book, but if they have a photo of a particular model of sneaker, then they'll connect it with like a different item of fashion and then like a music style. And then, you know, like even a political movement or like, you know, and so just by looking at sneakers, you'll get like a lot of information that's linked to the sneaker. And I think for like a lot of Japanese people, like, cause they're such nerds, like they're real, like there's this huge kind of collector kind of geek culture. And um, with a lot of hobbyists, they're really into like whatever they're into, like a hundred percent, like total, yeah, t like total geeking out at things like that. So, um, so I think the good thing about magazines is that like you can really discover things that you just don't just by like looking for something specific on the net. And um, yeah, I really do love them. And I think like another great thing about magazines is the paper element. Like I think there is a fetish for paper here and you know, there's like a lot of like ways you can come across like really high quality paper here, like in the architecture or like in the lifestyle, like even with the, within food culture and packaging and they'll use paper that's like made by you know, people that are designated as, you know, intangible cultural heritage, you know, people, and they take it really seriously. And so I was like working for a magazine called Transit and the paper quality is just, it's through the roof. Like they're really partial to the texture of the paper. Um, it has a specific luster to the paper and like a real beautiful sheen. And so the photos look really magical. And I think um, with the books, like they're printed on such beautiful paper. So I think yeah, like people do have a real passion for paper and that's something that I've been around. So um, anything like books and magazines, like I'm really, really, because I grew up in that generation, like I really, really like love that kind of format. What are your favorite Japanese magazines actually? It's really, I shouldn't say this because I have worked for them, but like Transit is a really good one. Have you seen that one? I actually, when I went to Japan, I bought a vintage one of Brazil because that's where I'm from. And, you know, and, 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 and listen, uh, Manami, I was so surprised because they knew so much stuff that like a normal travel magazine wouldn't do. So they really went deep. And, and as a Brazilian, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And yeah. by the way, I was reading because I used the Google Translate app. Oh I just put God. it on top. So <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. What a great choice, Transit. What a great choice. Yeah. And, um, with the photographers, like they are sponsored by like Fujifilm. So they're all shooting on film. Like the whole thing is so exquisitely made, like the paper quality. I remember um, I was doing a few like indie print projects and that was, this was in Hong Kong and I took transit cause I wanted similar paper and they were like, oh no, there's no way we can get this kind of paper. Like, it's just, you know, like Japan's not going to release this kind of paper. So, um, so yeah, the paper quality is like as good as it gets as well. And yeah, some of their photographers go out there for like three weeks even though the month the magazine comes out like every month it's a different place like some some of their photographers are on location for three weeks of the of the month so it's yeah it's really really beautifully done like so well crafted like the illustrations are great like everything about it i just really i really recommend it and um the other one it's like it's not like unusual like it's a really mainstream magazine but i really i do like brutus and i think the interesting thing about Brutus is that it just picks one theme. So every month it'll be like a different theme and they'll go like really into it. Like they, they also have cat and dog issues as well, but like there's things like, you know, bizarre plants or like aquariums, but 
you won't be interested in the topic at all until you read Brutus and then you're like, I'm obsessed with this topic. Like I really must go to like every aquarium now. So they do have a way of like um, bringing out a real interest in a in quite niche topics. And I do think they're real um, tastemakers as well, like classic influences. That was Manami Okazaki, author of Japan's Best Friend, Dog Culture in the Land of the Rising Sun. The book is out now, published by Presto. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hull. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. Meanwhile, you can listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Dion Warwick, That's What Friends Are For. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time. It's goodbye from me. Keep smiling, keep shining, knowing you can always count on me. For sure.